Good morning. This is lesson 14 in the Gospel of Mark. I've changed my title again, Learning from the Leftovers. Now, I have to confess, uh, Colin, when we were over at uh, the Beatty's house last night, uh, it, it occurred to me, I guess Jeanette pointed it out to me, that where you are going, there will be no electricity. And I have to admit on Saturdays, especially later on Saturday, I'm thinking in terms of the text. And my first thought, carnal though it was, is I thought, no electricity, no refrigerators, no leftovers. (laughs) And that, my friends, spells out a whole lot about the difference between men and women. Now, my daughter Beth is here. And... And women have this thing about leftovers. It's like there is some huge challenge to hide that stuff, uh, masquerade it. But, you know, it's how many times can you set this same stuff out before them before they figure out what it is? For men, it's like the mere mention of the word leftover, and it's like, oh, not again. You know, they're just leftovers and men just don't somehow connect. All right, I repent, sort of, about that. This text is about leftovers. It took me, it took me a while to see it, but this text is about leftovers. It's not just the loaves that our Lord Jesus wants his disciples to think about. It's the leftovers he wants them to think about. And so that's why I changed my title. You remember we, uh, I got on this little thing about connecting the dots back in chapter 6. And that was because Jesus fed the 5,000 in, uh, in, in verses 30 through 44 of chapter 6. And after that, he walked on the water, and the disciples were amazed. Now, as I read that text, they're not being rebuked by Mark, not by our Lord, but they're not being rebuked for the fact that they were fearful when they saw Jesus coming at them looking like a ghost walking on the water. It's their amazement that when Jesus gets in the boat, the storm stops. And, and, and Mark adds this comment. They didn't get the connection between feeding the 5,000 and that incident on the water. Now, do we get it? I mean, you know, we've been suspended now. We're now in chapter 8. The reality is, I don't think we get it. And from what I've read, most of the scholars haven't gotten it yet either. So let's not get proud about how, how the disciples weren't seeing too well. We're all kind of blind as bats when we come to this text. But I think it, the connection is clear and there for us to see. So then you see this pronouncement of Jesus that all foods are clean, followed by his going into Tyre and Sidon and Gentile territory. There he encounters this Syrophoenician, Mark's words, Canaanite, Matthew's words, this woman, this foreign woman, and she and Jesus begin to have a conversation that circles around this word, loaves or bread. And Jesus says to her, in effect, it's not right to take bread from the children, from the Jews, until after they have been satisfied, then we can hand the scraps, as it were, under the table to the puppy dogs. This woman gets it. 
when it comes to bread. She gets what they're talking about. When we come to our text, doesn't it just drive you nuts when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and here are the disciples say, did you bring the sandwiches? They just don't get it when it comes to bread or leaven. So that's where we come today with this same uh, thing in mind, only it's even a greater failure on the part of the disciples now because not only have we had the feeding of the 5,000, we now come to the feeding of the 4,000, and it's a rerun in one sense of what we saw in the feeding of the 5,000. Let's go then and look at the feeding of the of the 4,000 as we see it in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And I want to point out the differences first, if I can. First of all, I think I mentioned this in a previous sermon, but because of the similarities that we see between these two stories, some of the scholars who haven't got better things to do than think up thoughts like this come away saying it's really the same event and, and, and somehow they just got different details and, and it's just one of those variations. That doesn't do anything for me, folks, and it certainly doesn't do anything for a high view of Scripture. But look at this word, another. Do you see that? Um, there, there are different ways of handling that. I think uh, the, probably the major way of dealing with it in the translations is, again, there was a crowd. But that word, another, is saying... This is not the same as the feeding of the 5,000. Isn't that, isn't that crystal clear? There is another time. So I said, this ought to silence the pseudo-scholars. We're not talking about the same event. We're talking about another event, as Mark uh, spells it out for us. This is now a miracle that is carried out in Gentile territory, not Jewish territory. It is a miracle with different numbers. It is a feeding of the 5,000. Matthew says there are men uh, that are 4,000, not counting the women and children, but 4,000, whereas in uh, the other, the preceding feeding, it was 5,000. In the feeding of the 4,000, it seems fairly clear that Jesus is with these people for a lengthy day. He goes across the sea, Early in the day, he says to Philip, uh, you know, we got a pretty good-sized crowd here. How are we going to feed them? And then it's in the evening of that day, late in the day, when the disciples come to Jesus and say, you got to send these people home. We don't have any food. It's one day. This is three days. Three days in the wilderness where these people have not been fed. Uh, pretty different. Here there are seven loaves, not five, seven baskets of leftovers, not twelve. And here's one you have to watch carefully, but the baskets are not the same. Go to my next shot here. I confess, I had to go to the internet, folks. I couldn't find a basket like the one they described, the commentaries. But if you look at a lexicon, it will say of the basket at the feeding of the 5,000, it will say uh, in the lexicon, it's a hand basket. And it was, it was narrower at the top. I got this, you know, this is somebody trying to sell purse type gizmos. But, but, you know, it's, it, you can see, you got it with your hand, right? Not big. And it would normally be narrower at the top. And it's where you carried your lunch. It's a lunchbox. In effect, a basket lunchbox. Now, go to the uh, next one. This is the biggest, <laughs> the biggest thing I could find for sale. 
And it's, oh, I can't remember, it's two feet or, or maybe even three feet long by about 18 inches wide. But you would call that a large basket. Now, in the lexicon, it says this was the basket, not where they would carry their lunch, but they often would carry supplies if you were going to travel some distance. It's a kind of a glorified suitcase, if you would. <clears throat> and if you had an animal, let's say you had a donkey that you were riding or it was a beast of burden, and you're going into the wilderness, you have to have something to feed that creature, right? So you would fill this basket with hay. And and so you understand that the size of the basket would be fairly significant. Now, go to the next slide. I, this was not one of the commercials, but this was some company back in the, in the Northeast selling baskets. Would you agree with me? That's a large basket. Now, the basket, the word that is used for the basket in the feeding of the 4,000 that takes up those leftovers, that is the same word that is used in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is lowered through the wall in a basket. That's the basket. Okay? Now, that's why I put all those guys in there. It's not that big, but it's not a small basket. Now, why am I going through all this rigmarole? Because we tend to discount the leftovers in the feeding of the 4,000. And we're saying to ourselves, well, in the feeding of the 5,000, you got 12 baskets. Yeah, 12 penny little lunch baskets. We got seven big baskets, folks. This is no second class miracle, is it? It's loads of leftovers. And that's a difference that I think we're supposed to, to note. So... All these differences should make it clear to the reader, we're not talking about the same events, we're talking about two very separate, distinct events, although they have their similarities. So let's look at the similarities. Similarities between the two feedings in Mark. It's in a remote, desolate place. Same basic circumstances. The crowd is hungry has not been fed, and Jesus is compassionate and is concerned with meeting their physical needs. Uh, what also is the same is the dullness of the disciples. They haven't changed. They haven't learned. Even though they've been through this one time, it's still like they're going through this, like it's the first time they've ever seen a crowd of hungry people in the wilderness. They're dull as dust. Where do we get the food? And then there's our Lord's miraculous provision as he breaks the, the, uh, the bread and the fish and, and distributes it, blesses it. And they all ate and were satisfied. These are not mini meals that are being served. These are full, satisfying meals to a group of people who have been there three days. And there is surplus food that has been collected. There's the similarities uh, between these two. In spite of all this, the disciples somehow could not connect the dots. That's what the scholars seem, some of them seem to miss. <clears throat> They're saying, well, look at how similar these are. They must be the same event. That's the point. The point is, how similar could it be to the feeding of the 5,000 for these guys not to realize we've been here before? The solution is no Einstein solution. It's a simple one, but one that has not been noted. 
So the Pharisees now demand a sign of the Lord Jesus and are denied in verses 10 through 12. They ask for a sign from heaven, and their purpose is to put Jesus to the test, to somehow prove him to be less than who he claims to be. Jesus sighs, this deep sigh. I think it's probably worthy of a sigh here and refuses to give a sign to this generation. Now, the thing you need to note, if you're reading in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account is longer and it's tougher on these people. Jesus calls them there a wicked and adulterous generation. And he says, there will be no sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. We read that elsewhere, Matthew 11, uh, three days, three nights in the earth, so or in the belly of the fish, so three days and three nights in the earth. So the question is, how do, how do we connect the dots? If this is an inspired text, if the feeding of the 5,000 is placed before this thing with the Pharisees, how do we connect the dots? Well, one of the things we should note is, right after the feeding of the 5,000, there was an encounter with the Pharisees. And that was the encounter in Mark chapter 7, the first verses 1 and following, where they're worried about the hands that are breaking, breaking and eating the bread because they haven't been ceremonially washed. Here, it's different, but it's, it's the same sequence which I think we are probably meant to note. But here's what I get. The disciples are duller than dust. Now, the Pharisees ask for a sign from heaven as though they haven't had sufficient data, right? And what Jesus is saying is, you've had all the data you need. I'm not giving you any more. Here's the dots I connect. The disciples aren't doing any better than the Pharisees. The disciples did get the signs. And they didn't get the point. So in that sense, the disciples and the Pharisees, I wouldn't say are equally dull, but they're sure in the same category, dullness, that we see here. All right, then we move on to the warning about the leaven in verses 13 through 21. Here the, uh, the Lord Jesus leaves, that word may actually have an element of almost forsaking the Pharisees. He goes to the other side of the sea. And, uh, and, and Mark adds this little parenthetical comment. The disciples forgot to pack a lunch. And Jesus says to them, I suppose stomachs are already growling in the boat. I don't know, you know, knowing those guys, probably so. But Jesus says to them, beware. Now, these are strong words, friends. These are strong words of warning. When Jesus speaks with these words, your ears ought to perk up and you ought to say, this is going to be important. Beware. Look out for the leaven of the Pharisees. I would think that's a pretty significant statement and I would really want to know, I know I would hope I would, certainly I would after this story. I need to know what leaven is. I need to know what the leaven of the Pharisees is and the leaven of Herod, do I not? Okay, so I'll tell you my best shot. Leaven is portrayed as something which has a growing, expanding influence, but it also is that which is often the portrayal of 
evil influence. If you remember back, and I put that text uh, in there somewhere, uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, when Jesus has spoken harshly to the Pharisees about this whole matter of the cleansing of the hands and whether defilement comes from outside or within, the disciples took Jesus aside and they said to him, you know, Jesus, this isn't really politically correct. Do you understand that you offended these guys? And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Jesus' answer. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, isn't that really the essence of what he says? Who cares whether I offend these guys or not? They're write-offs at this stage of the game. But you see, to the disciples, they weren't. They wouldn't be worried about them being offended if they, if the Pharisees were not important. If the Pharisees were not people whose approval you sought. So what Jesus is saying is, man, you need to watch out. We've got some hazards in the road. One of them is the Pharisees. They're out to kill me, and they'll be out to kill you. You better watch out for these guys. They're the enemy. And Herod's in the same camp. You better watch out for Herod too. These are the people from whom you should beware. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he goes on to say, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. And you remember, a great percentage of our Lord's teaching is a correction of the teaching of the Pharisees. Their teaching, if embraced, if let stand, would lead people to stray. So Jesus is speaking about something that is a serious issue. But uh, what do the disciples do? Do they say, well, Jesus, tell us more about this leaven stuff. Here they go. And, and I, now, you've got to think about this in the Gospels. How many times is Jesus talking about a very important subject? And the disciples are off on another frequency. Jesus, is that not right? I mean... How many times do you find Jesus saying to his disciples something like this? Men, we're headed for Jerusalem. And the Son of Man is going to be rejected there. He's going to be persecuted, put to death. And in three days, he's going to rise again. And the disciples are off having a discussion about who's the greatest. They didn't even hear it. Do you remember when Jesus is at the, 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 uh, the, the table there and, and Judas before he leaves? Jude, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And, and that discussion now sets off, and Judas says, in effect, is it me? And Jesus says, you're right, yes. Well, how come other people didn't hear it? Because they were talking about who was the greatest. See, these guys are in a totally different frequency. Here's Jesus talking about a serious threat. And the disciples were in la-la land, and all they can say is, leaven, 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 bread, bread. Oh, lunch, lunch. It went leaven to lunch. Not 7-Eleven to lunch. Leaven to lunch. And, and, and they're now saying, well, I can't you see Peter and Andrew? Didn't you pack the lunch, Andrew? I thought you did, Peter. Wasn't my fault. Here they are arguing, arguing about lunch. When Jesus is talking about this serious matter, I got to tell you, folks, they didn't connect the dots.
our Lord's rebuke. In 8.17, he says, why are you arguing about forgotten bread? Is that all you guys have heard me say? Is, you know, that it's getting close to lunchtime and, you know, you're worried about that? By the way, folks, they had one loaf. I said this before. They had one loaf. Given the percentages of multiplication out of the 5,000 and the 4,000, how bad off do you think these guys are? They could have a boatload of bread. Folks, one loaf will do it. Jesus is in the boat. Ah, my back. Anyway, Jesus says, why don't you get it? Why don't you understand? Are your hearts hardened? Now, here's where we get to the key on the leftovers. How many baskets of leftovers were there left when we fed the 5,000? Twelve. How many baskets of leftovers were there when I fed the 4,000? Why has Jesus chosen to focus on what was left rather than on what was eaten? It's the leftovers that are his focus. Is that not right? Not the loaves, the leftovers. So he says, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Haven't you got the point from that? Now I'm going to leave you hanging in suspense for a minute. And let's go to the last part of the text. I confess it wasn't in your preparation study guide. I cheated. I added these verses in. And the, and the reason was, I think it's really, it's another exercise in connecting the dots. This is the case where a man who is blind is brought to Jesus, those who bring him uh, beg Jesus to touch him so as to heal him from his blindness. Remember, Jesus takes the man by the hand, leads him, as it were, uh, out of town, out of sight, and there he uh, he puts spit on his eyes and, 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 and so on. And uh, it's the only two-stage miracle of its type in the New Testament. Now... I understand in John chapter 9, you've got the delayed miracle, right? Where Jesus puts mud in, in, in the guy's eyes and then he has to go off and wash. But when he washes his eyes out, he sees. He doesn't say, well, I sort of see. I come back for another treatment. He sees. This guy sees sort of. I see men like trees walking. <laughs> I mean, that's not bad, but it's not a full healing. Now, are we going to say somehow Jesus didn't turn the dial up on the power quite far enough? You can't lay this one off on Jesus. So, obviously, there's something deficient that's happened, but Mark wants us to see it. Now, remember, he has just said, can't you hear what I'm saying? Can't you see what I mean? <laughs> and then we come to a blind guy who sees partly. Is that not a picture of the disciples? Is that not a picture of us, folks? It just occurred to me, and this is where my last minute stuff comes from, and I'm sorry, it's never in the notes, but I was sitting here and I thought about 1 Corinthians 13. For we see things as in a glass darkly. We see 
we see men like trees walking too. And in John it says, we will see him, we will see things as they are because we will see him as he is. Our sight isn't going to be perfect till heaven. Is it any surprise that some text of scripture just passes by? Or we think they haven't passed us by, but we're wrong? We see very much like this guy. Now, the reason I'm, I'm going to stop here is to say, this really sets the stage for what follows. It not only is a picture of the disciples' impaired sight, and of Jesus persevering in patience to where they finally see, he's, that the man finally sees, but the reality is, when you come to Peter's great confession, where he sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he sees that much, but when Jesus starts talking about a cross, Peter's up in arms. He doesn't see it all. He doesn't see it all. He doesn't see it all clearly. He's like this man. He sees men like trees walking. He's got a piece of it, but he doesn't have the whole of it. That, to me, is why the dots connect as they do. Now, let's come to the, the, the whole thrust of what this text is about, I believe. Would you not agree with me the disciples are not connecting the dots? They didn't connect the relationship between the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the sea. They certainly don't see the connection between what's taken place in the feeding of the 4,000 and this leaven thing that's just come before them. What's even more significant, my friends, is my reading of this text says the disciples are not gaining ground, they're losing it. See, I think there's a way in which we look at this and we say the disciples are really dull at the beginning, but they get smarter and smarter as time goes along. I got to tell you, I don't see any smarts. <laughs> I don't see any smarts through the whole story. It's not until Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden, now it's clear. And, and, and I take that back to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is saying, the reason I'm speaking in parables, and now he quotes Isaiah, so that seeing they may see and not see, hearing they may hear and not perceive, lest they turn and repent. And he says to his disciples, to those who are on the outside, I speak in parables, so they won't see. To you who are on the inside, I explain those, so you will see. We get to Mark chapter 8. I see the blindness of the disciples as running at a par with the blindness of the Pharisees. They're not doing so well. They're not seeing better, folks. They're seeing worse. Unless I'm seeing something that is not there in the text. They're losing ground. They're actually connecting dots, but the wrong dots. They're connecting the wrong dots. See, leaven and lunch are their dots. But lunch isn't the subject. So, yeah, they're connecting dots here, connecting dots there. Great. They don't get the point which our Lord Jesus is trying to make. I believe this text tells us why they're connecting the dots wrongly. And that's why it's so important to us. 
I think what you see is, one, they fail to ponder the meaning and the significance of what Jesus has already done. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he expected his disciples to say to themselves, this is a sign. What is Jesus telling us about himself? Doesn't that make sense? What am I supposed to learn from this? Not just that we got lunch. And it's no wonder if they didn't learn the lesson with the 5,000, it's no wonder they don't apply it with the four. They never got it. So here they are failing to ponder the meaning of the earlier miracle or of the later one, the healing, the feeding of the 4,000. They focused on the physical and the material, not the spiritual. Jesus was using leaven as a symbol for spiritual truth, right? All they can think about is the literal part, leaven, bread, bread, lunch, my stomach, dinner time. That's where they are. They're not thinking in the spiritual realm, but on the uh, material. By the way, John chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000. What was it that the crowds were thinking about? They were thinking about lunch in the future. Give us this bread forevermore. And when Jesus started speaking about his body and his blood, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Crowds are saying, we're out of here. And Jesus explains in John chapter 6, I'm talking in a spiritual realm. And see, they're, they're incapable of computing on that spiritual realm, and so they're dwelling on the physical because that's all they got. The disciples are doing precisely the same. And, by the way, I'm cheating on myself going to the Great Confession. But when you look at Matthew's account of the Great Confession... And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus talks to them about his death. Peter takes Jesus aside, gives him a whack or two, says, we're not talking about this anymore. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking God's thoughts. You were thinking man's thoughts. Now, you got to remember, here's this whole thing. Why are the disciples thinking about who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand? Why are the disciples intent on who's the greatest in the kingdom? Because they have a physical, material view of that kingdom and where it fits them. That's why Jesus talks about taking up your cross. It's about sacrifice, not self-indulgence, not self-benefit. Man must take up his cross. They're thinking in the material realm, not in the spiritual realm. So what should the disciples have learned from the loaves? They should have learned what the Canaanite woman learned. You see, Jesus had said to her, it's not right to feed the puppy dogs under the table until after the children at the table have been satisfied. She understood the sufficiency of Christ. And here's what she's saying. They, and, and remember, two times, 5,000 to 4,000, they all ate and were satisfied, filled, right? 
They had enough. In other words, our Lord's abundance was such that the dogs under the table could start yapping for food. And that's what she says. There's plenty, Lord. There's plenty. The children are satisfied. Now feed us. She's right. Because she understood the sufficiency of Christ. And the disciples did not. Now, take it back. Here are the disciples. Jesus has fed the 5,000. Now Jesus walks out to them on the sea. If they had taken from that, our Lord is one greater than Moses. He is not only the one who provided for Israel in the wilderness, provided bread, He provided a path through the sea. If Jesus is the all-sufficient one, what's the big deal about walking across the sea? See, once you understand Him for who He is, then why should you be surprised by what He does? But we're just like that, aren't we? When God answers our prayers, it's like, wow, what a surprise! Why? With the adequacy of Christ, why is that a surprise to us? Syrophoenician woman had it right. Now, let me try some things on you, some of which are not in your notes or mine. Some applications. Uh, first one, the danger of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel focuses people's attention on the material. The prosperity gospel focuses people's attention on the material. Our disciples' problem was that they could only think in terms of material and not in terms of spiritual. And isn't it interesting that often those who are the prosperity preachers are those who are doctrinally in error. When Jesus says the leaven of the Pharisees is false teaching. So here the guys are promising, you know, a new car, whatever it is that they're saying. If you just trust Jesus, you're going to get all these goods. When the reality is we ought to be looking to him spiritually. Not just materially, but spiritually as well. I'll put it in a different way. When we are focused on and obsessed with the material, we don't seem to have enough brain space left to think in terms of the spiritual. When we are obsessed with the material, as Peter would be when Jesus talks about his cross, as the disciples were when Jesus talked about leaven, when we are obsessed with this material world, somehow our thoughts don't make the leap that God intended them to do, to move in the realm of the spiritual, which is really what's eternal and important and critical, right? Why so many... Hey, you may sound, think this is really strange, but, but here's one of my strange applications. Have you ever heard somebody say, the Bible is just... There's just all kinds of, of interpretations. That's just your inter interpretation of the Bible. There's this interpretation and that one, you know, and, and, the, and the, the, the inference is, how will I ever find the Bible reliable when there are so many interpretations? There's only one interpretation of the Bible that's right. It's the one the disciples missed, 
But that was right. The reason why there are so many interpretations is because we superimpose our wants on God's Word. We're more interested in lunch, and so we think about bread rather than false teaching. Next. God delights in displaying His sufficiency against the backdrop of our inadequacy. Don't you love it? He wants the disciples to see in the feeding of the 5,000. He wants them to see. There's no way to feed this bunch. There isn't. The disciples have no way to do that. That's the point. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you know, I ask God to take away this affliction that that's a messenger of Satan has brought into my life. And then I realized God's power is evidenced in my weakness. God doesn't need my strength, friends. He needs me in my weakness to cling to His. Is that not right? That's what this text is about. The sufficiency of our Lord. Now, I'm going to give up because my time is gone. But I do have some uh, questions for you to consider. Are we applying what we've already learned and experienced at God's hand? Remember when Jesus says, To him who has, more will be given? As I see it, the disciples have not put to use what they've gained earlier from Jesus. And they're learning less rather than more. Because you have to use what you have or lose it. Are we focused too much on this world and the physical dimensions of this life, so much so that we are not thinking in terms of the spiritual? You got the stock market, you know, on a downhill run. You got the nation's economy on the skids. You got all this stuff. And, and, and I know you could, you can look at your, uh, your retirement accounts and you can do all that and you can say, this does not bode well. And you'd be absolutely right. God's sufficiency is best displayed in our weakness. God is taking things away from us so that we can put our trust in Him. So let's be careful, friends. Let's be careful about whether it's our political panic or our economic panic or whatever, if we're focused too much on this world and on physical, material things, then we're missing the point of what God is doing in the spiritual realm. I will end with this. On your last page of notes, I provided you with a small list of sufficiency texts. In fact, I found one more when somebody uh, turned us to Isaiah this morning in Isaiah chapter 55. It says uh, in, in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. If you think through the Word of God and you think about its description of, of, of God, it is sufficiency, adequacy. And so you look at those words, richly, 
And all of those words that speak about God's wealth of grace, of mercy, of love, of provision, God is not downgraded by standard and pores. Is He? He's not going to run out of money. He's not running in the red. All of eternity is a display of His wealth and folks, it never ends. That's the God we serve. That's the Jesus of the New Testament. If the question is, who is Jesus Christ? He is the all-sufficient God in whom we should place our trust. If you're here apart from faith in the Lord Jesus, He has provided an abundant salvation through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. He has taken the sinner's place. He has died and borne the sinner's punishment. And He offers to the sinner the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him. I want to close with this benediction which comes from the final verses of Ephesians chapter 3. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever father it's to you that we give the glory thank you for your adequacy and your sufficiency thank you that you never run low on power or grace. Thank you for your perseverance with us that even though we see things like men walking as though they were trees, you persevere with us. You will give us full sight in heaven and you will enhance our sight through the Spirit now. May we see you in your fullness and sufficiency and trust in you. May we cease to be obsessed with the material dimensions of this life, but even in that, acknowledge that you are adequate to meet all of our needs. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.